As they talk about excessive burden or excessive uh, expense. Yeah. Well, I mean, anytime you ever, anytime you talk, I, I should say every time, but a lot of times some of these decisions people make are, you know, based on expense, you know, so when it comes to long-term care, they, they can't wait for the old man to kick off because they're chewing up all their inheritance. Mm. You know, I hate to say it so bluntly, but I've heard it so many times in my life that, yeah. you know, that end-of-life care is based on the fact that they're spending too much money. Mm -hmm. So it does say excessive expense. Where do you draw the line? Well, I mean, obviously, if you're withdrawing any kind of care that's going to immediately cause the person to die, uh, especially if you're going to be eliminating any kind of the obligatory elements, hydration, nutrition, stuff of that nature. But um, obviously, anything that's going to be at a certain point becomes, you know, um, unnecessary in a certain sense because the person is, is close to death. But the, the typical, the, the obligatory factors, the ordinary uh, elements have to always be there. Otherwise, that becomes the cause of death. Now, it's, if the question becomes, what's going to kill this person? What they have or the withdrawal of the basic elements? And if you withdraw hydration, nutrition, and any of those elements before the person's going to actually die, then that becomes death dealing instead of the actual disease or condition the person has. Um, but even world, a lot of theologians today, John, even good ones, that's a major debate amongst what, how do you adjudicate burden? How do you adjudicate uh, cost? You know, what are the, where is the line there? And the church is purposely vague on this because each case is different. And so to avoid um, putting a rule in place that could be uh, different in every circumstance, we are very careful about giving a hard and fast rule. It makes it complicated in each individual case then. You find it, I find it interesting that people um, want to make sure they do everything they can to get the money out of their parents' uh, control so that when they get put in a nursing home, the state has to take care of them instead of their own money that they've accrued. So I always find that a very difficult thing to square because why would you make them, you know, um, you know why, would, why should the state pay for them when they had their own money? Right. To right. take care of themselves. How I can The money have to be used in 10 years. If they still found out to put somebody in this room, they, they give you their family the money. Mm -hmm. 10 years prior, they will go to room, they will go after that money. I think part of it is, you know, yeah, yeah right. Take right. Yep, that's right. So part of it is that if you if you have a, if, if both your parents or one passes away and one's in a nursing home, the state can come in and take your your home or you, and yeah, yeah. or pay for the care that's there. Yeah. Um, my my family just looked at this about uh, about three years ago ourselves. My parents both thank God they're in good health, but in their mid seventies now, and we're looking at these issues, and so we said, you know, well, does it make sense to put the house? in my name, and that's way it got they end up at a nursing home in, in, in say, 10 years from now, whatever, then lose the house. And what we realized was, looking at financial, our perspective here, as senior citizens, they get a lot of breaks with taxes and, and 
of that nature. So if I were to be the person who owned the home, all that goes away, obviously. Now, the other thing is, my brother is independently wealthy. He is senior vice president of a company, so he is, he is, he's fine financially. Um, I'm taken care of in terms of the church and being able to be okay in my circumstance. So our our discernment was, you know, hey, let's 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 see what happens. So they end up in a nursing home, God forbid, and they, you know, whatever, and the house goes to the state. The house goes to the state. You know, that's 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 what we can do. If I were a married man with a family, not making the kind of money that my brother makes, I might have to think about yeah, it. But uh, under the under our current situation, that really didn't pay to do that for a variety of level, a variety of, of uh, reasons. But your parents have yeah. money. Why? Why would it be okay for for you, your family, to keep the money and then let the parents be taken care of by the state? You know what I'm saying? People, I'm more, I, yeah. Well, the thing I've John is that my, you know, the state. Read. Well, well, it's also a matter of saying that that the state has has that money put aside, you know, for for medic for end of life care or you know for the for the elderly. So, I mean, it's a matter of saying that if my parents ended up in a nursing home, the money we have, both in the house and in their own savings and in their pensions, um, I can put them in a very nice facility on our own dime, not on the state's yeah. dime. And that would be kind of what I would, what I would do without even thinking about it. Uh, um, for ourselves. Private payment instead right. of registered, yeah. Right. So, yeah, but it's, it's difficult. These... Uh, these, you know, end of life and, and elder issues are and and more and more of an issue. As people live longer, it's just becoming more and more of a thing for us to have to face, you know, which is raising all kinds of interesting questions and, and, um, and challenges. So we're waiting on Peter and Daniel, but we're going to get started here tonight. They can zoom in when they get themselves hooked up. So we'll, we'll start ourselves uh, tonight and then we'll kind of get into the lecture. All right. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So before getting into the lecture tonight, a couple of things in um, current events that have to do with what we're talking about. The uh, incoming administration is putting a COVID task force together. Maybe you've heard of this. And one of the people that's going to be uh, very involved with this is Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who is part of the Obama administration. And in 2014, Dr. Emanuel wrote an article in The Atlantic in which it was titled, Why I Want to Die at 75. And essentially his his, uh, main argument was by the time you hit 75, you're beginning to get to deteriorate, you begin to have all kinds of health issues, you become a burden to your family. So really, a, a virtuous person at 75 should want to die. And he thinks that really, the state should look at certain ways of doling out care, of making things accessible to people at 75. So he would say, you know, really, should a person at 75 or older get a flu shot? No, they probably shouldn't. Or an ammonia shot? No, they probably shouldn't. If there is you know, a medication shortage, the medication shouldn't go to them because they've lived and loved 
have their children, grandchildren, they live their life and say, you know what, they, it's okay for them to die. After all, you know, so I look at this and say to myself two things. First, it seems a bit of dissonance here when a man you're working for is 78. So you're saying <laughs> that three years ago, he should have kicked off. Now he's a president-elect. So like, how does that work essentially? And the second thing is, COVID we know kills those that are old disproportionately. So having somebody in charge of the COVID task force who thinks that at 75, your death is not a tragedy, your death is actually welcome, that's a concern to me, frankly. And you know, where's the line drawn? So he essentially says that any kind of medication, antibiotics, flu shots, pneumonia shots, anything like that should be not given to an older person because the younger people that actually have years left to live, that have use in the society still. And this is the mindset. So it's not just a matter of talking about it in class, and like, oh, this is terrible. It's happening right now. And you worry about what kind of policy might that become? Because if we're saying, you know, if we allow assisted suicide, as many states, including New York coming up soon, now are allowing, and you're saying, well, if you're if you're 75, you have no longer kind of you know your your life isn't worth much anymore. So what happens if somebody is has you know um, onset dementia, for example, at 73, and by 75 they're really beginning to lose the capacity? Can the child that person say, you know what, they're 75 now, they've lived and loved, they've had their life, so I think it, it's probably best for them to just be able to have a peaceful, dignified, dignified, right, death. So, you know, and if that seems like it's, you know, the sky is falling, I'm being, you know, a pessimist here. Gents, things that seemed impossible just, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. You know, if you were to told somebody in 1950 that we're going to believe that a man, that a man could have a child, you'd say, I lost your mind, you crazy? But now... We're told that a transgender man can get pregnant because he has a uterus. Well, I mean, okay, that's insane. Or even even the more basic thing, that two guys of the same sex can get married, leave by the state. People have said 60, 70 years ago, that's, that's insane. What seems insane today becomes policy tomorrow. If the language is controlled and the slow drip of madness continues to descend. So it's it's a really um, challenging issue right now that a person with power in the administration kind of coming in in, in a month and a half from now um, actually is, thinks these things, which is a little bit uh, disconcerting, frankly. Yeah, where does it stop? What about I, mental people who have low IQs? That's right. Not give medicine to them? It yeah. Never stops. It, it James, you're absolutely right. It becomes a real issue of, of, um, talking about some of the things in, in, uh, beginning of life issues that becomes a matter even in, in beginning of life situations. Um, all right. Second piece of information. A friend of mine was in their house yesterday. She has grandchildren, one grandchild who's uh, about 19 months old. Went to the library the other day to buy him a book. 
And you put it in a book, you know, like kids' book, you know, A is for apple, B is for banana, C is for cartoon, you know, kind of thing. And you put it in the book, and leafing through it, A is for ability, that's good. B is for belief, no, that's this is good. What the book brings it home. Begins leafing through it, even more thoroughly, as she has it, they bought it. G is for gender. And then it explains, well, all that. This is it, this is it, this is for kids, for children. Then it explains that gender is how you feel about who you are. It's a feeling. T is for transgender. That some people believe they're in a different kind of body. L is for LGBTQIA. People identify in all different ways. Z is for this. That we don't use him or her. We don't use, you know, he or she. We use this as not offend a person who doesn't identify with the common pronouns. This is a book. What like, bookstore did he go to? Well, she went to a typical <laughs> bookstore. Must have been on down. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't like going to the uh, local loopholes, you know, society yeah. of insanity or something, you know? She went to a regular bookstore and, you know, but how many parents might unsuspectingly, but she's not a person who believes in that stuff, and she bought right. it for her grandchildren and... And now he's going to throw it out or, or send it back. But, you know, it's, it's what creeps in. Uh-huh. And the earlier they get you, the earlier that they become indoctrinated. And that's, that's a real, real serious problem that we're facing now with those that are, are you know, um, controlling the narrative in these situations. So I thought that was kind okay. of worth sharing that what we're talking about in class is not theory. This is reality and becoming more and more reality every passing day. So good for us to be aware of all of these things that we're dealing with in the culture and in the society. So, how will you baptize those children? I mean, under which name? That is a great question, Lucas. I haven't thought about that. That is a great question. I've been thinking about it all week. Really? Yeah. No. It's. it's yeah. God help us. I mean. Well, you know, we're going to be faced with this. In New York State, in New York City, you, they could choose not to put any sex, right? Any gender, right? Wow. I guess you baptize the kid in whatever name the parents give you. So if it's a, if it's a if it's a girl, and the name is you know Chase uh, Joseph, you baptize the kid Chase Joseph. You know, I mean, I guess that's what you have to do. I mean, because sacrament is going to happen. We baptize the kid according to the name parents give you. I don't know what else you'd be doing in that circumstance. What do you do, good. Father, if the, if uh, during the baptism you are to refer to the baby, and normally you would refer to as he is this or may she this or whatever, and the parents tell you, no, 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 uh, we don't identify them as he or she at this point. They'll decide yeah. that. What I probably would do, Paul, in that case, is the very terribly grammatic thing of referring to them with the... Um, Plural pronoun they. You know, may they be welcome to God's kingdom. May they be pre original sin. Um, it's one person, so it, it's not correct grammatically. But that's, I, I, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, I thought about weddings, and that being an issue. Because, you know, the reality is when Obergefell happened five years ago, the Supreme Court decision which created the right to gay marriage, some of the, some of the um, more militant progressives with that issue wanted to go to churches like the next day and try to get us in trouble 
with denying the right to marriage. More moderates who supported gay marriage but also supported the church or didn't weren't radical to listen. You won. Don't spike the football. Like let it go now. Let, let it go. You, you won. Like I'd be quiet about it. But as the years have, have passed, more and more the radical voices are the ones that are loudest, and they fear that we're not far from that happening. We had a case at the school here actually about a couple of years ago, where two uh, lesbian mothers wanted to enroll their child in the school. So we said, well, okay, but here's the deal. You know, we're going to teach your kids things that you guys at home are going to have real problems with. We talk about morality and talk about, you know, sexuality and stuff of that nature. So the parents told, listen, we need to sign a written document saying that we are not abridging your, 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 your freedom or your whatever, your, your rights. And the parents um, were not belligerent. They chose to not have the kid come to school. Thank God. It was easy for everybody. But um, that becomes an issue in terms of, of I hadn't thought about baptism in names. To be honest, yeah. That was a good That's point. What, Thank you for raising that. That's why we have Unitarian churches. I mean, honestly, if, if at a certain point, they that's just a ridiculous argument to be to have their infant gender neutral is a ridiculous point. Yeah, yeah. But, that's, yeah, but you, you have know, to discover you know, that. You know, it used to be the case of um, the, the insanity of a kid choosing their own religion. Well, when they get older, they're going to choose. All right, listen, that means you're raising an atheist, essentially. You know, because that's what happens. The, the nonsense, you know, would you, on the same token of that, would you say to, to a parent, well, listen, don't raise your kid with manners. When they get older, they'll choose the manners they want. No parent who's sane would agree with that. And when it comes to religion, well, they'll, they'll choose later on. How? What are they going to choose? You know, no seven-year-old is reading a book by Thomas Aquinas on theology to figure out what they're going to become. You know? So, most times, what you're raised with is what you, you become. And even, you know, even people that lose their faith or have issues with their faith, a lot of time, marriages, baptisms, they come back. Because the faith they were raised with still might have some little piece of them which causes them to now want to embrace the faith that they had as children, if their parents had it. Because the reality is, if mom and dad don't have it, the kids aren't going to have it either. It's just the nature of the beast. And um, that's part of what we're seeing right now, is that the whole generation of parents now, who are largely unchurched, are raising unchurched children. And it becomes a problem in the vocational world. When I tell you, gents, how many guys I deal with whose parents are like dead against them, welcome, dead against them becoming a priest, you know, and they just, they just, they just think it's, you know, it's right, what they do is insane. So, yeah, we unfortunately we face this um, all the time because that loss of faith is a real issue that we're dealing with right now. And uh, ain't getting any easier, that's for sure. But all those issues have to be cleared up at the pre-baptism conference, those type of meetings. Right, so yeah. So you can get well, it all out of the way. That's right, James. So, yeah, I mean, when, when you first, yeah. And if anyone who takes in the baptisms, you know, some parish the deacon does that. So it could be the case with the deacon, your case is you guys, you'd be the ones who make those, make those phone calls and deal with those issues, you know, one-on-one. 
very possible. But that's you're right. I think we cleared up in the, from the very beginning of the baptismal uh, preparation how we're going to handle this. Yeah. So it's really yeah, it's a mess. But you know. All right. So let's move on to our topic today. And we're looking today at beginning of life issues, which has its own little wrinkle. Now, I know that everybody here in the Zoom call, thank God, I'm sure, is, is pro-life. If you're not, you know, you can leave anything you want and uh, something else. But um, I'm guessing you're all pro-life. So that's going to be assumed. However, the majority of people today in the world will have some questions, some issue with abortion. So it's good for us to look at some of the arguments you may hear in favor of abortion and how do we answer those arguments. Now, some of these arguments I thought years ago before I was a priest, hearing them in seminary, like nobody says these, this is insane. Until in the parish, people use these arguments to me. And I was like, are you, this is for real? But unfortunately, it is for real. So if it seems far-fetched, if it seems like that would never happen, just wait, just wait. So we're gonna go through some of the more common issues you may face um, right now. One of the ones that you hear, even politicians will use, like Catholic politicians, will be drawing on Thomas Aquinas. Now, Thomas Aquinas believed using 13th century science based on Aristotle from thousands of years before that in the process of conception and growth, a child went from a vegetative to a to a um, animal to a human soul. Can be a three-step process. So Thomas believed that at day forty is when there actually was a soul, a human soul, placed in the fetus, in the baby. <coughs> Thomas was basing this upon the fact that Aristotle would go to the, the morgue in downtown Athens to examine cadavers to learn about the human body. Now, some of those cadavers that Aristotle was looking at were pregnant. And you would see the, the, the baby inside the mother, and somehow at certain stages it looks different. So Aristotle thought, well, clearly it progresses here from a vegetative to an animal to a human soul. And Thomas was basing his understanding of that on Aristotle's teaching from thousands of years before. So people will say that Thomas Aquinas taught that before 40 days, abortion is not a problem, it is not sinful, because the human soul is not there. Now, I find it remarkable that people who don't follow Thomas Aquinas and anything else would follow him on biology from the 13th century. Like, for, for real, really? But Catholic politicians who are pro-abortion will, I've heard them, will use Thomas Aquinas, well, over in his grave, probably had them do this, to defend their position. Well, Thomas Aquinas taught this, so therefore, what they don't realize is that Thomas taught that abortion at any stage, at any stage, is a grave sin. But when it becomes a human soul later on, then it becomes an even more serious sin. But at no point, Thomas taught, is abortion not a grave sin and an offense against life. So that argument 
is completely and totally debunked by what Thomas himself wrote. So we are selectively trying to use him for their own insane purposes. Now remember, even in terms of science and medicine and embryology, the human embryo, the, the, the mammalian embryo, was not discovered until 1827, only 193 years ago. Not long at all. We didn't really know what, how things worked out in terms of pregnancy and in delivery. The ancients believed that the principle, the, the, the main element that caused conception to happen was the male, the man. And the woman's blood would mix with the man's semen and that caused conception to happen. And we know that's not what happens, obviously. But again, the ancients use observation to try and explain what was difficult to understand. So to use 13th century biology in an attempt to sow confusion about abortion in the Catholic Church is a real serious problem. Okay? So the issue of what is called sometimes delayed hominization is how Thomas would describe it. Delayed, delayed hominization. I'm going to know that as it's called just to put it out there in terms of what Thomas would say about it. All right? Another theory they'll use is a theory called probable there is freedom to choose something or something else. We His lost father, the word, Father. Yeah. You froze. Probable something. Personhood. <laughs> Or Back to the beginning of the second one. What's that? Back to the beginning of the second point you were making. Where you froze on us. Oh, you know, let, me, let me let me use a different uh, connection. Hang on, guys. Sorry. I apologize. Better? Can you hear me? Yeah. You're frozen. Frozen. Frozen? Um, we can hear you. <laughs> you are. It's half the battle here. Or you're very still. Well. I hate this guy. Oh, man. Asshole. The miracle of Zoom. Well, dance. Yes, we well, yeah. have, uh, I guess we can't have class tonight. Well, no, that's not going to be easy. Easy. Jeez. We're, get, we're, getting, we're getting the message above you that your bandwidth is low. Maybe bandwidth is low. Huh. That's just George's opinion. Asshole. <laughs> All right, let me, you know what I'm going to do? Let me zoom out and zoom back in. Try this again, okay? Give me a second here, guys. Bear with me. I apologize. Hey, what if we're all gone when he comes back? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Williams, why don't you pick it up from here? Yeah, <laughs> One Christopher to another. Exactly. He's got a great name. Why don't you pick it up from here? Fuck you, Doug.
right, let's see if this works any better. Or I can, am I moving? Am I, am I? Yeah. All right. Fine. Hallelujah. All right, so what did I miss uh, that you guys didn't hear, George, you mentioned? The second argument, the second okay. case. Second argument, what is called probabilism. P-R-O-B-A-B-I-L-I-S-M. Probabilism. Now, probabilism teaches or says that where there is doubt, there is freedom. So in other words, what they're saying is, with abortion, there is some kind of doubt about personhood, about life. So therefore, abortion can be, there's some wiggle room when it comes to abortion, understanding whether or not it's right or wrong. So there's some doubt about obligations regarding life and abortion. Now, this is nonsense. Look, John Paul II, in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, 1995, stated in the most authoritative way of Pope Ken, John Paul II wrote this. He said, I declare that direct abortion, that is abortion will as an end or as a means, always constitutes a grave moral disorder, since it is the deliberate killing of an innocent human being. This doctrine is based upon the natural law and upon the written word of God. Is transmitted by the church's tradition and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Paragraph 62, Evangelium Vitae. Now this is as authoritative as it gets. There is no doubt, no doubt, nothing probable about the church's teaching regarding abortion. So it's very important for us to have a sense of this, that there's no doubt about this at all. Now, the reality is a lot of people today have have a, a deep moral objection or, or just human objection to abortion later term pregnancy. But they will say, well, earlier on, the first trimester, for example, it's okay. You know, then I'll then I'll then I'll support it. But really, this is an argument of chronology, not dignity. If you think about it, gents, myself, all of you, right now here, it might be a Zoom in this classroom, all of us are adults. We were young adults. We were teenagers. We were preteens. We were uh, children. We were infants. We were newborns. We were uh, blastocysts. We were marulas. We were zygotes. And then we were not. At no point, at no point in that entire list of things were we ever not human. Nobody begins as a rock and is born as a human. No one starts out as a salamander and is born as a human. It's a matter of chronology. So those who say, well, you know, after all, first trimester was the big deal. It's a huge deal. Because the potentiality of becoming an adult person is there. It's not a matter of dignity. It's a matter of chronology. It's a matter of size. Now, some say, well, look, I mean, really, they'll say, that, that, new, that 
you know, fetus, that, you know, three or four or five week old fetus is simply a clump of cells. Well, thing is, gents, that definition, all of us are simply advanced clumps of cells. So we're going to say that a three, four week old fetus is but a clump of cells. Well, all of us are clumps of cells. As they're made, as they're made up of. So that argument simply does not hold any weight because that I mean that doesn't make any sense. It's, you know, it's not logical. Some will go as far as to say that there's no difference between a fetus that is a clump of cells and a tumor developing inside a person. Both are developing, both are unwanted, both are problematic. That is insane. That is insane to say that. Also, I'm looking at Bob's shirt here. Yeah, man, Jeremiah. Right. That before, yeah, God knew, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So, yeah, the reality is that in the process of development, I mean, it's remarkable. The first day, you have, you know, the zygote that is there first. After five days, the blastocyst. And all of a sudden, now all these things are beginning to happen as the fetus begins to grow and begins to have cell division. It's remarkable how this takes place. Within three weeks, the primitive streak, which becomes the beginning of the central nervous system of the, of the child, begins to develop. So before a woman even knows she's pregnant sometimes, the beginning of the central nervous system the beginning of the brain of that child already is beginning to develop. Tumors don't develop into higher forms of existence. Zygotes, arulas, blastocysts, they do. And they go through the process of growth in the mother in those years of development. So at no point is this child not a, not a human. It's really important because this is one of the things we hear a lot today. Okay? Questions, comments, things that aren't clear? We're good? All right. Father, the, yeah. and maybe you're going to cover it later, so if it is. But I always question when it's a fetus unless it's lost at someone else's choice, meaning someone assaults a woman and the fetus is lost, now it's a baby. Right. It's that vernacular change of baby and fetus that is, that is always bothering me. Well, New York just changed its laws a couple of years ago. Uh, in New York State, as of two years ago, if a woman and her unborn child were killed in a car accident, it was double homicide. No longer under New York State law. It's changed now. The woman, the unborn child is killed, is simply a singular act of vehicular homicide. Because the infant, the newborn, the, well, not newborn, the, the infant simply, the fetus simply doesn't count any longer. Uh, it is it is remarkable. You know, one of the great tragedies of, of 9-11 was 11, 11 um, unborn children died on September 11th. And a couple of years ago, to honor the passage of New York's insane abortion uh liberality 
the one, one World Trade Center was lit up like pink or something to honor that. Meanwhile, on the monument below, it has, you know, so-and-so and her unborn child. So we're honoring the memory of the unborn children who died on September 11th while celebrating the murder of the baby in the womb that's happening all over the state of New York with great liberality. It just shows the dissonance and the insanity of this position that we're currently dealing with when it comes to the issue of abortion. Um, you know, it's funny because my generation, my, my generation, which is, you know, the millennial generation Z after me, I often say at, when I'm at different high schools giving, giving talks, I'll say, you know, this high school is one third less full than it should have been. Because a third of you did not survive the womb. The place that should be the safest place that we ever can experience in the totality of our life becomes the place where we're most vulnerable to losing our life before it even begins. And that just shows the um, kind of the madness that we're dealing with uh, with these issues. So, yeah. But people use the arguments. We hear it all the time. None of this is, none of this is new. And you know, that's the other thing. Language. Language is important. So we hear about reproductive rights. What the hell does that even mean? I mean, no one denies the right to reproduce. Want to do that? God bless you. Go ahead. But, like, what right to kill your child? How, how, how is this a right? So, the language, you know, the, the the verbal, the verbal wordsmiths who um, twist language. Yeah, we see it. We see it, and it's it's just a brutal, um, brutal situation we're dealing with right now with the anti-life generation. But my generation, thankfully, is seeing things a little more clearly because you know the other thing is, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when a parent first got their sonogram, that first sonogram, you're thinking, what am I looking at here? It's just a grainy black and white. What is this? But now, with 4D sonograms, oftentimes the first picture in the baby album is the first sonogram picture mom and dad had when they went to the doctor for the first time for the first sonogram they were going to get when they knew they were pregnant. Because the, it's now much more clear, much more uh, descriptive. So it's not like just the grainy black and white only doctors can be able to decipher. Now anybody can be able to look at that and kind of see what we're dealing with here. Is it hard to deny someone's humanity when it looks like it's a human being from the beginning? So hopefully there's some shift in um, in the tide here when it comes to how we, how we view these issues. Hey, Father Chris, right. can I just make, yeah. I just want to make one quick... Doctor, please, yeah. Yeah, one, one quick comment. Um, embryologically... All organ systems are formed by eight weeks in the embryo, which means that they're essentially, I mean, they're a, they're, they're a human person from conception, but by eight weeks, first sonogram is due by six weeks. And what you're talking about with 4D sonograms is you can actually see the features of the, which is what the people react to. They react to the features of the baby, the, you know, the fingers, the toes, you know, and everything else. Um, however, by eight weeks, it's a fully formed organism. Mm -hmm. 
with, you know, central nervous system, heart, lungs, everything. So, um, you know, and I, and I don't think enough people understand that and they don't know that. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to make that point to let you know that embryologically you. that, yeah. you know, that embryo is, a, is fully formed at eight weeks. Well, that's, re- that's a really, thank you. It's a really important point because eight weeks is pretty early on. So, I mean, that's, 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 it's, it's a great point for us to know that and to be able to pass that on to people because that's going to be an issue which timing is everything, as, as they say. And um, the earlier we can kind of backtrack this stuff, the, the more important and the stronger our argument becomes. You know, people that are, again, the pro, pro-abortion people who realize that, you know, there's an issue here of personhood, of individuality. So what they say is, well, look, 14 to 16 days after conception, it is possible for there to be a twin. There's a cell division of one of the, of the I guess the zygote, whatever is there, and there becomes now a possibility of there being two individual babies being formed now in the womb. So how can we, they'll, they'll say, how can we say that it is individual personhood and rights and, and all that kind of stuff when after two weeks it could split and there could be two of them? Now, first point, it only happens in the case of identical twins. Paternal twins are two separate eggs that are fertilized. So with paternal twins, not a problem. Identical twins, though, where there is a cell split, cell division, whatever you want to say about it, they're confusing individuality with indivisibility. An individual can, in fact, be divisible. Example, very simple example. Take a flatworm. The flatworm, you have one individual flatworm. It's cut in half. Then you have two flatworms. Both are individual. So just because it can be cut or split doesn't mean it loses individuality. It still is an individual. So in the case of a twin, identical twin, the first cell that's the first that's there, the first uh, you know zygote that's there, yeah, sure, it's, it's a, a individual with, with you know personhood and, and rights. When that splits, that second developing fetus now doesn't now lose its rights. It simply was it was split, so it's divisible, but individuality is not lost. Does everyone get what I'm saying here, or is that not clear? Because yeah. the point they're going to raise about twins. This is not a small thing, Anthony. Yeah, no, it's it's, you know, it's it no, definitely clear. I mean, two individuals, you know, they're they're sharing the same house, and um, that's essentially it. But take the more extreme form of Siamese twins. Mm. Still, you know, still two individuals joined at you know at some organ or some organ system. Still, two individual people just you know join together. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. So we see here that a lot of the arguments that are made by those that support abortion really don't have much underneath their their argument. A lot of it is based simply upon trying to concoct all kinds of bizarre scenarios to try and kind of trip up the person who is uh, pro life. 
Now, one of the arguments that, to be honest, I haven't heard that much, but it's out there, is called the violinist argument. Now, the violinist argument is this. A woman wakes up one morning and finds herself connected to a very famous violinist. The logic of their position then, and the point is if she cuts him off from her body, he will die. So what they're saying is, does she then have an obligation to remain connected, despite the fact that the detachment will cause the violinist to die? What they're saying essentially is a woman who's pregnant, does she have an obligation to keep this other life that happens to be dependent upon her alive inside of her? They're saying that no, no, it's you know, it's not. It's just a matter of being able to um, see. Well, this baby is dependent upon her, therefore you can you can kind of remove it, and there's nothing morally wrong about that. Because in the violinist argument, you could have the violinist cut off from her, he would die, and no moral problem will be there because he's dependent upon her. It isn't her fault that this happened. This argument, but connection, arose largely out of necessity. Because the science began to show more and more that what is developing in the mother is a baby and not some inanimate object. So their argument becomes this baby, though, is dependent upon mom for his existence or her existence. Therefore, she has the right to remove it if she deems that she should, because she can. Now, of course, all of this springs from the fact that in America, as we know, of course, abortion legalized for the last almost 50 years. Now, we all know Roe v. Wade. What we don't know usually is the story behind Roe v. Wade, what brought it to that point. In 1970, Roma McCorvey found herself 20 years old, poor, a waitress struggling, and pregnant living in Texas. 1970, Texas had very strict abortion laws. When she first tried to get the abortion, she lied to the doctors and said she'd been gang raped and therefore to be able to have an abortion. She was told, well, I'm sorry, but here in Texas, unless your health, your physical health was in jeopardy, you cannot procure an abortion. She went to an adoption lawyer to try and get adoption papers ready for her child. The adoption lawyer said, well, you know, Kobe, we're looking at this and we realize that people in Texas now, some attorneys are trying to fight the statutes against abortion here. If you go and talk to them, your case is what we may need to overturn the laws here in Texas. So she went to his, his lawyers, who said, yeah, this is a great case we have here. We think this could, this, could, this could be a winner for us. And of course, she sued Texas, they Texas, for denying her right to an abortion. Now, in the meantime, the child is born. All this, all this is unfolding. And it is, in fact, adopted. Until the day she died, she had no idea if it was a boy or a girl. 
child was born, take up more immediately, and put up for adoption. But now, it goes to the courts. And the courts, of course, begin to adjudicate this. As we know, yes, the Supreme Court, and they rule that, in fact, there is a right to privacy, and in common up the right to privacy, there is a right to have an abortion. 20 years later, in the case of the Planned Parenthood decision, Anthony Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, wrote this. It's remarkable. At the heart of liberty, Kennedy wrote, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Kennedy was a wizard as a justice to write hallmark cards and put it forth as Supreme Court decisions. I mean, that idea of, you know, right to your own existence, right to your own concept of meaning of the universe, this is a right out of the Garden of Eden, right? Feel that God follows you good and evil, even that tree, you'll know right from wrong, good from evil, but be like God. So, Roe decides this, you know, abortion becomes legal in the whole country. But, what's interesting is this, Roe claimed to be agnostic about the personhood of the fetus. Now, wouldn't you think that if you were not sure about whether or not it was human or a person or not, you would err on the side of caution, not on the side of, well, we're going to allow this, okay, which is what actually happened. But they also said that they were not comfortable with third trimester abortion, but only for certain health reasons might that be allowable. On that same day, same Supreme Court, 7-2 decision, the other case not talked about, but equally important, was Doe v. Bolton. Now, Doe v. Bolton had a Georgia law struck down. The Georgia law said that abortion could only be procured in Georgia if there was grave health the life of the mother, birth defects, rape, or incest. And the Georgia law said only a Georgia resident could have abortion for those reasons. If you're living in Florida or went to Georgia for an abortion, you couldn't have one. The Doe decision came down seven to two, but essentially said that health reasons for, an abor- for abortion could be emotional, physical, psychological, familial, the woman's age, which meant that essentially, as Roe said, if her health in the third trimester is in danger, only then would abortion be allowable. Doe said essentially anything could be her health. So of course, all 50 states now had abortion legalized. One of the great lies told today by people on the pro-abortion side of things is that if Roe is overturned, then abortion will be illegal, we'll have back alley abortion clinics again, Code hangers, a whole, you know, gross, it's a lie. It's not true. All it does then is revert abortion back to the states. And we can imagine living in New York or Connecticut that either of our two illustrious states can guarantee by overwhelming majorities would have abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. 
because this is the way that some of our peers and contemporaries think. So this is the current state of situations here. But really what it comes down to is Roe concocted out of thin air, even Justice Ginsburg, before she died, made, made, made a comment about this, saying that she thinks that Roe went a little too far, too fast. And because of that, it causes backlash against abortion. I fear, Jen said, if Roe ever overturned, the, the riots, the violence in the streets would be off the charts. Because taking away this perceived right would cause such a, a backlash. It would be like an insane situation. So it's really, it's really an unfortunate, um, unfortunate thing to be dealing with here. For many people, though, abortion is seen as a last-ditch effort at contraception. The pill has failed, the condom breaks, and therefore this is our recourse to eliminate the problem. What is totally lost here is personal responsibility. If you're going to engage in an act that can bring about new life, don't be shocked when it brings about new life. Like this can't be a, a huge like shock to the system. Wow, it actually happened. Of course it happened. So, and you know, the whole, the whole idea of giving, you know, condoms to or pills to teenagers, doing that, in a sense, endorses them having sex outside of marriage. But be responsible. Be responsible. Okay. You know, teenagers aren't known being responsible to begin with. Why would we think? on an issue as passionate in the moment as that. Well, let's stop. Hang on. I have to take a pill. Put this on now. Wait a minute. Hang on. Come on. So we don't, so we see that what we have to be taught is virtue. When you teach virtue from a young age, it helps people to realize responsibility. You know, that having a child is no joke. What a work. You know, years ago, when you had large families, a young teenager, preteen, who had an infant for a sibling, would see the enormous amount of work that raising an infant is, and said, "By God, I don't want to deal with this." You know, so it was a way of, of, of kind of cutting this out. But we see celebrities having you know children in this beautiful and it's nice. And give me a break. You know, when when Kate. And William had their first child, Prince, you know, Prince Duchess Kate and Prince William had their first child a number of years ago. She gives birth in the hospital and she walks out in this like beautiful, like floral dress out of a hospital. Like, what the hell? What mother leaves the hospital after giving birth? Looking like she's, you know, walking out of a salon. Walking out of a salon. Being a princess helps. So we see how the culture and the society give us this. You know, it's really insane view when it comes to having children and the responsibility and the challenges that are part of that. Okay, so just a little bit of a of an aside here when it comes to all of these. Um, Isn't part of the issue, Father, that uh, people don't understand the realities of abortion and what's really happening and 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 the process yeah. and what it is? I mean, what, why do we have born alive laws? Because babies were removed from mothers 
in abortion and and arguably could have been viable and then is that is that murder i mean that it's i don't think people no one wants to know what happens inside those buildings and that's the problem if we actually saw like if you know as, as vegans would say if you saw meat processed you probably wouldn't eat as much same idea it's no. it, it's, it's the reality of just being willfully uh willfully uh, ignorant to the process right. you know it's funny again back to the spiritual side of this i've talked to some exorcists who have said that work going into an abortion clinic as an exorcist it the the number the amount of demonic activity they come across those clinics is off the charts because the evil of killing the innocent especially the newborn the baby in the womb is such a, a demonic evil that uh, for those exorcists some of the most difficult circumstances they face in their ministry are abortion clinics because of the, the nature of, uh, of the evil that goes on in those places. Now, doctors are charged with protecting life, saving life, defending life. Abortion is the only medical thing that I can think of, maybe I'm wrong about this, where you would take life instead of preserving it or protecting it. So to me, it's a violation of, of the very nature of being a doctor, where your whole life is, is devoted to saving life and, and restoring health. And instead, now you're taking life under this guise of reproductive freedom, reproductive rights. It's, um, it's very, very distressing. You know, uh, like a pre- yeah, okay. A similar, a similar corollary with the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Why, why physicians will not take part in the intentional killing of a human being. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The ethic of life that we're, you know, looking at here and, and the fact that every life has dignity and value. That where we are in relation to what we've done does not uh, um, give us our dignity and our worth. It becomes a very serious problem when we begin to put parameters or begin to put conditions on human life, human dignity, and human worth. It's a very serious issue when we begin to depreciate the value of life in those stages, in those contexts. So, you know, point, George, thank you for bringing that up. I don't understand the, the woman's right to their body versus the baby's right to birth. I, I never can understand that. You have a well, right to your body? You're right, James. And then again, that goes back to the whole idea from a couple of weeks ago that we do not have absolute dominion over our bodies. We have useful dominion, but not absolute dominion. If we rent, we don't own. Because at some point, his body is going back to God, going back to the earth and where it came from. So the fact of the matter, if you have the body for a while, we should take care of it, treat it well. But the body of the child developing in the womb is a distinct DNA set, is a distinct person. You know, a pregnant woman does not have four hands and four legs and four eyes and four ears and two noses and two mouths, okay? is a separate, distinct body developing inside of her. The guess is dependent upon her. But here's the deal. Children are dependent upon their parents for several years after they're born. If you're an Italian, by 18, maybe if you're lucky by 18, you can get out of the house. But you know, the reality is, for children, 
for many, many years after they're born, they are dependent upon a newborn baby or a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, if not taken care of, attended to or protected, will end up in serious trouble, hurt, or dead. So parents have to take care of the kids for many years after they're born. So what is the difference between the mother, with the, uh, the kid in the womb, and the kid born afterwards, who then has to be dependent upon mom and dad to take care of them and protect them, feed them, clothe them, give them everything they need to be able to be, uh, be safe survive. and taken care of. Yeah. Again? Yeah, to survive. They need you to yeah. survive. You know, and even more with a mother. I forget the exact medical terminology for it now. If you guys know, you know, let me know. But apparently, when a baby is born, there's like a sort of like a cell or something that remains in the body of the mother after the kid is born. So part of the child in some kind of cellular capacity remains, lives inside of the mother even after the kid is born. So how much more is it horrendous when a mother then takes the life of that child who should feel protected and defended? I mean, the womb to be the safest place in the world on earth, and yet it becomes a place of great danger where every day thousands of babies don't survive the womb. That is just an appalling thing that we see happening and it's just really terrible. And again, to your point, James, the right to life, the hierarchy of rights, overrides the right to bodily autonomy, right? If you, don't, if you can't live, nothing else matters. So bodily autonomy is important. Bodily autonomy is good. But if you don't have the right to life, then bodily autonomy doesn't mean anything. So we're not cited as a reason for abortion, bodily autonomy, a woman's right to choose. No, because the kid's right to life is more important than that. And perhaps part of the challenge also here is that my, um, you know, the the, the, the adoption agencies is hard, not easy to adopt any longer. But for me, guys, it's a personal thing. Just a little bit of a personal story here, so I think it kind of bent a little bit. My brother, is uh, 10 years older than I am. My parents were married for five years, couldn't conceive. The thing is wrong with them, just couldn't get pregnant. So we went to the New York Foundling Hospital. My brother was born to a 16-year-old woman, a young woman who had, you know, had got pregnant out of wedlock and couldn't raise, couldn't raise a child and put him up for adoption. My parents adopted my brother in 1972. At that point, in New York State, again, ahead of the curve, New York State, abortion was legalized at that point in New York State. The woman, thank God, chose adoption instead of abortion. It would have been very easy for her to go and have the abortion and I'd be an only child. Ten years later, surprise, surprise, I come around. Much to everybody, like, oh, wow, this is, you know, okay. So mom is, this one mom is 37 years old, and her friend said, Catherine, listen, you're older. It's a risky pregnancy. You already have one child. You know, maybe you should consider your options here. 
is it really worth going through this? Well, I am grateful, very grateful, that mom was pro-life. Because somebody else might have said, hey, you know what? You're right. I already have one kid. I'm older now. High-risk pregnancy. Should I really risk this? My friend, uh, Jeff Mazone, who's a great guy, who's seminary for a while now, is uh, married with, with children. His wife, uh, Daniela, her, his, her mother was living in Washington Heights, you know, poor family, really uh, difficult circumstances, and gets pregnant out of wedlock. And they're poor, living in Washington Heights, and have anything. So then Daniela's mom, they were any person in that case who was, who was frightened with Planned Parenthood. With Planned Parenthood, and her parents, all right, you know, we'll, we see what you're doing here, fill the paperwork out, come back in two weeks with a procedure. In those two weeks, Daniela was born and managed to survive because in the time between the appointment being made and it being carried out, she's born. Her life is spared. She's a mom with two awesome kids, beautiful children, married to a great guy, great family. So, you know, we see, we see some of the effects of it. And, you know, I see generally in the confessional, in counseling, this is no joke. The pain of this for women is a real thing. They can shout their abortion. They can put up all kinds of signs and posters and how proud they are of their abortion. But that's all, in my mind at least, a defense mechanism. Because deep down inside of you, as dull as your conscience may be, as dead as your conscience may be, something inside of you knows this wasn't right. This wasn't a good thing. And um, it's amazing, though, in society. Bill Clinton, 30 years ago, ran on the premise of abortion as safe, legal, and rare. Okay. Now, his same party says it should be safe, legal, and ubiquitous. Everywhere. Where even nurses who are barely trained in this area to be able to, you know, perform abortions. It's a real distressing thing. And it's part of the anti-life mentality that we see going on. From the elderly to the unborn, the most vulnerable. We're going to hear in the gospel this weekend, last judgment scene from Matthew's gospel, Christ the King, uh, Christ the King weekend. And we're going to hear Jesus say, and I was hungry, he gave me food, thirsty, gave me drink, naked, you clothed me, drink, you welcomed me. I would add to that. And I was unborn, you defended me. And I was terminally ill, you respected me. And I was dying, you cared for me. Because those are the ones today who Christ identifies with. Christ identifies with the unborn baby in the womb whose life is being taken away. The terminally ill patient who's dying alone. You know, Christ is placed in a borrowed grave. He's born in a stable. By the way, a little bit of a side here, just looking at Christ's birth. He's born in Bethlehem. Born in a manger, born in a stable, placed in a manger. Okay? Bethlehem, by the way, two Hebrew words, Bethlehem, Beth house, the hem of bread. Okay? He's placed in a feeding trough for animals. So Christ is placed in a feeding trough 
in the house of bread. It's like God at his birth screaming to us, hey, Eucharist, Eucharist, at his birth. So a little bit of a side, but kind of cool, so I mentioned it. All right, happier thing. It's all kind of negative stuff tonight. So I had a happier, happier Christmas <laughs> thing, uh, giving us some kind of hope here, because it's kind of rough material, like, I got to get it. But, um, but important, nonetheless. Father, what if somebody uh, came to us down the road, someone maybe who had had an abortion, mm -hmm. a male or a female, it doesn't matter, I don't think, right, no. and wanted to know, you know, so what happened to the child? Ah, good question. What's the church's question on that? So, this is one of, those, one of those difficult questions that the church does not have a definitive answer on. So, I'm going to give you my, Father Chris, I think it's a logical answer. I think it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. My opinion, but I think it works. So my thought is every aborted child is a martyr, is a martyr to the culture of death. And martyrs go straight to heaven. So I would tell a parent who is struggling with that, that in my opinion, as a priest, not as not as a pope, not as a church authority, not as a bishop, but as a simple priest, I believe personally that every aborted child goes to heaven because they are martyrs to the culture of death. Is that true or not? I don't know. My opinion, I think it works. You know? Um, here, here. Thank you, George. <laughs> but um, thank you, Bob. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, you know, they are martyrs. They really are. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible, horrible situation um, that we're dealing with in our culture, which is, um, which is insane. You know, it is not a new thing. In the Roman Empire, we know this happened in the Roman Empire, where they would, um, well, one of the things they used to do was exposure with newborns. Child is born, you don't want it, bring it to the forest. Leave it there, and nature takes its course. Early Christians would wait for the edge of the forest to rescue the children that were being exposed by the pagan parents to have the kid die. We know that abortion was a common thing. In the Didache, from the year 110 AD, the Didache this explicitly condemns abortion. One of the words Paul mentions in his letters as a condemnation of uh, different things is the word pharmakia. Pharmakia in the Greek means like potions or like a medical concoction that was used to induce an abortion. So even Paul's own letters, you read it in the Greek, you read it carefully, even Paul sees the appalling nature of abortion. It was rampant in the empire. You know, one of the things that happens is missed easily. In John's passion narrative, we know that the, the high priest won't enter the praetorium because they'll be defiled, right? <clears throat> Why? Because pagan houses had these, these drains in the home, underneath the house. If you had a baby that was aborted, that died by, you know, at the birth, they were thrown down these drains and under the houses 
with these cemeteries of these dead bodies. And we know, that we've, so archaeologically has pointed out, the bodies of, of infants that were underneath these homes. So the high priest won't enter Pilate's house, the praetorium, because under Pilate's house, being a pagan, he would have had this cemetery of you know children that were, that were born and died, who were aborted, and were thrown down there. So because any kind of contact with the cemetery or a corpse was defiling, the high priests could not enter Pilate's house on the, on the, on the eve of Passover because they would defile them. So even in the first century, this was a serious issue. And the church from the beginning, at no point did the church ever say that abortion was legitimate, there's a reason for it, there's an excuse. Never. Because the, the, the killing of the innocent, by definition, is murder. And so it's always wrong. Looking at Bob's holding something, holding up the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Right. Right. Yeah, go ahead. All right, this is something I always have a problem with. Yeah. People talking about even church teaching about abortion. My problem is people take abortion for one. These they have a big difference between the abortion, as we know, abortion is a crime, is a killing, and death penalty. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you know, there is... So Pope Francis has recently kind of said that any any kind of taking of life belongs to the purview of God alone. So even though the death penalty is taking of life of somebody who is a convicted you know criminal of some sort, you know it's still the taking of life, which is God's um, purview alone, God's God's prerogative alone. So we don't have the authority. Um, to do that and in the west especially you know in the west we have we have jail we have prisons we have justice system so i can't think of any reason why in the west death penalty would ever be justifiable other parts of the world maybe there's a debate but at least in the west there there is no reason that i can see why i would need that penalty because it just doesn't make any it, it's not doesn't make it's not the same um not a reason for it frankly I and mean, when we begin to to play games with human life and, and those definitions, it begins to, to cause some degree of, of concern for me, frankly, on those issues. Okay. Thank you, Rock. That's a good point. All right. Father, the, the, pers yeah. the person who lives in the East still has no less of a dignity than the person oh, who lives. Of course. Of course, I, I totally agree. I actually think Pope Francis was actually, um, certainly he was targeting the United States, but I think he was targeting the world as well. Mm, right. Um, in the change that he made to the catechism. Uh, all life is so sacred. There is simply no justification. It's inadmissible mm, uh, to take right. life in that, in that way. I and large part is that we can protect a society from <laughs> just aggressor. Right. Right, absolutely. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. Yeah, I'm just the, uh, <coughs> the life. I agree. I agree. All right. Now, you know, getting up some of the arguments to get for abortion here, can we continue on our, on our way here? Some people say that it would be distressing for a woman 
to know that the child is out there somewhere to have you know if there's an abortion it's an adoption so but even if that causes her distress is mental distress enough justifying the killing of the innocent of course not so yeah that's a problem and what about the father of the child he has zero rights when it comes to the life of his child as well he can't say yes he can't say no he has no right anyway in any capacity when it comes to what his um what his child's life will be so it really is a uh, a terrible situation for him as well and a lot of, a lot of parents a lot of fathers who have um, dealt with this there's a lot of pain they feel as well because their their girlfriend or whatever chose to have an abortion and they would have they would have been totally against um that happening and would have raised a child themselves if they could have so try uh, uh, quick quick personal yeah, sure. story mm-hmm. i'll try to make it as quick as i can um my wife and i adopted a child from columbia south america when she was two months old in the 1990s um and uh we had to, we had to make we had to agree that we would not seek the birth mother. That was the rules of the Colombian agency that we went through. Um, But given the technological advances today, um, our daughter actually reached out and found her birth mother in Colombia. And she actually Skyped with my wife and I, um, the mother who's got a lot of issues. And my daughter, unfortunately, has a lot of issues. My daughter's name is Grace uh, and we're co-raising her daughter, Mercy, um, but the the uh, biological mother, uh, when she met with us, she was speaking in Spanish and there was an interpreter. It's just she was absolutely so thrilled that we had adopted her daughter and gave her the beautiful life um, that she had here in the United States. It was really moving. Very George, thank you for sharing that. Wow, beautiful. Uh, but yeah. Pray, pray, pray for Grace. She's really struggling, and um, but uh, so we have every morning Grace and Mercy. How old is she, George? Grace. Uh, Grace is twenty-seven, and Mercy, uh, who's with us, is just turned six. Oh wow! Okay, God bless you guys for doing great care of them. So, um, it's her George, can I ask a quick question? When do, when does a an adoptive parent tell their child they're adopted? Is there is there like a, a general time frame for something like that? Do you want to feel that one? Sure. Uh, well, the the experts are, are, and believe me, we read every book out there and saw every therapist and every treatment professional in the world. Um, they're saying don't hide it from the child. It wasn't real easy in our situation because uh, Grace is Hispanic and dark skinned, and we are as light Irish <laughs> as as can be. Um, uh, but we no no Grace knew from a very very early age. Uh, unfortunately, she suffered from reactive attachment disorder, um, which is a a common um, in in adoption. Uh, that child who knows that they're adopted, whenever they find out, it doesn't make any difference. It's 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 a it's a wound that they have that they can't uh, really attach with the adoptive parents. It's it's a it's a it's a it's in the DSM five. It's it's a, oh, wow. it's an actual psychological. Uh, or reactive attachment disorder that you just can't attach to your adoptive parents, um, but um, but through treatment and therapy, like everything else, 
Um, it's possible for the adopted child to uh, to attach. But see, to me, I mean, that just goes to show the greater bond between a mother and the child. The, mm. uh, the fact that, that that's something that's always there. That's a connection that the mother and the child will always have. Um, you know, even when the, the mother gives the child up for adoption. And, and you, we read and hear the stories of years and years and years later of children reuniting with their mother who gave them up for adoption when they, when they became an adult. Um, you know, and they, they talk the same, they look the same, they have the same mannerisms there, but they're also, but they're also have had a connection, uh, psychologically and spiritually, I think that, um, that mm. it never goes away. Um, so there's, there's joy for the adoptive parents. And there's also like in my case, there was joy for the biological mother when mm. she knew that her daughter was being well taken care of. Mm. I think it's important, George, you're saying here that when the person's going to adopt, I think it's very important to realize all of the challenges that could be out there with adopting a child. It's a laudable thing. It's a wonderful thing. But there also are real human difficulties that can yeah. result. You know, I, have, um, I have the same. My we, problem is that big, but you know, you have the same problem. Sometimes I have to ease him down. Mm-hmm. You have the feeling. You're not, you're taking me. You love me, but you're not my biological father. I same. I have a little boy. I take it. my wife take and hit it after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Wow. But yeah, sometimes you can see the action you make. He doesn't want to tell us. Not my body, but some action you have to be careful. Be, be, be careful. You know, when they realize that, they, they don't want to get out of their mind, but they're ready to tell you, do not, I, what I think you are. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a real challenge that a lot of, a lot of, a lot of other parents face, but um, it depends on the kid also. I mean, some kids are, they, they are adopted and they have no desire to find biological yeah. parents. The problem today is social media, they'll find you. You know, my brother's adopted, you know, biological mother found him. Nothing is private anymore. Nothing is private anymore. Everything's out there. So what happened was, interestingly enough, she um, she found him, and my brother, uh, even 10 years ago when she found him, think about timing. The week of my ordination to the priesthood, she contacts him. Look about, you know, bad timing. So, um, but, you know, but what happened was she was living uh, in Utah in pretty much like pretty bad poverty. And my brother at this point, even less than he is now, but was still living, you know, in Baskin Ridge, New Jersey, doing very well for himself. So like, you know, it became a bit of a thorny thing. She died about two years ago, his mother, biological mother. But for a number of years, it was kind of an off and on communication. Because he pretty much got to a point where he didn't want to find out anything anymore. As a teenager, he did. My parents were supportive of that. As he got older, though, had his own child, got married, he felt less of a need for that. But he contacted him, and as Rock is saying, nothing is hidden anymore. Everything is uh, is out there, you found out. So it becomes an extra kind of wrinkle for that. But... Um, 
One more quick question, George. Is there also a connection to the biological siblings that um, the adopted kids struggle with? Some do, yeah, some do. Um, and I think, you know, Fa Father Chris, your point about um, the prospective adoptive parents really doing their homework um, and understanding what they're getting into. Um, my wife and I were part of the support group that we went through to adopt uh, Grace, but we stayed on for years later, um, counseling and helping prospective couples that were in the same agency um, to deal with the things that they, they might be dealing with. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. But I, I I don't know I don't know a lot about the siblings. I wish I could answer that question for you, John. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So it's important stuff and and uh, personal. Thank you for sharing, George. Your kind of own life experience there. So to put a bow on the abortion stuff. Um, well, ask, well, yeah. I'm sorry. Again, again, sorry. Yeah, George. Go ahead, George. Go ahead. Sorry. Um. So like 30, 32, 33 years ago, I was working at a bank and there was a young girl who um, who became pregnant. Um, she wasn't married. Um, she was a kind of um, afraid to tell her parents. Um, the boyfriend was, you know, telling her, well, you know what the thing to do is, you know, get an abortion. Um, and she knew that I was, you know, a churchgoer and I would, you know, talk to her and just say, hey, you know, well, you know, if, if you, she wanted it, she wanted the child. And I said, well, then, you know, you can try to, to raise it herself. She spoke um, with her mom and her mom became belligerent. No, you've got to, you know, take, you know, get rid of this child and what have you. Make a long story short, um, she gave birth to a beautiful Young lady, <laughs> I was like the second person that they called at work to tell me. Um, and three days later, I got a call from the mom saying she passed away after childbirth. And now the grandmother has a newborn to now raise. So on my <laughs> on my thing, I'm thinking, okay, now I'm gonna get this raving. Hispanic woman going to now hunt me down. All she did was she couldn't thank me enough for talking to her daughter and getting her daughter through this because she said if for whatever reason the daughter would have passed on regardless of the giving oh, birth. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, she was like, at least I have her. Wow. And and you know i've kept in contact with her i was there for the christening and the first communion she's now 32 years old and married so they, you know there's good and and bad um where you know and it is it is it was i mean i'm not looking to take any credit for that but um but like they say god puts you in the right place at the right time well, your counsel for her, your support of her, George, obviously had an impact. Yeah. So, you know, you, you just don't know. And believe me, fellas, if you guys approach ordination in a couple of years from now, your word will carry even more weight because you're going to be in holy orders. People will come to you. So, you know, the impact that George's words had would mean even more now as a candidate for the diaconate and as a deacon, please God, um, in the near future. 
and as Deacon for many years afterwards, thank God, hopefully also. So people don't, you don't realize sometimes the impact that our words can have on those that are coming to us in very difficult moments that are that are very trying, for sure. So, yeah, it's great to have a sense of that. Last thing we just be, this is kind of, kind of living on George's point, but just on the issue of, of um, some of the hard situations. Every so often, to have an article, op-ed, in the New York Times or some other, you know, slate of the nation about abortion with a, with a positive of abortion, you know, spin on it. And normally, it goes like this. There's a couple, happily married, who get pregnant. And they wanted to get pregnant, have a child. And they discover that, you know, five, six months or so, the child is going to have a severe fetal abnormality. It would mean that this child would only live a few days or a few hours, and during this time would be in pain in those few hours or days that it lived. And the couple, heartbreaking, devastated by the news, believe that abortion is the best option for them and the child. Now, that is an admittedly hard case. It's wrong to have the abortion, even then, of course. But here's the deal. When people come at you with hard cases first, they've already lost the argument. When you appeal to hard cases, you don't have principles underlying it. Because here's the reality. If we believe that this child is a human person, with dignity and rights. It does not give the parents the right to abort this child, even when all signs point to a serious abnormality. And by the way, as an aside here, sometimes the doctors are wrong. And that's happened before, more than once, where a doctor has said, well, you're gonna have spina bifida or cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, and they're wrong. A friend of mine just last year had this happen to her, where she was pregnant in a high-risk pregnancy. Doctor told her, your child is be born with, I forget the name of it now, I can't recall the name of it, but some really serious abnormality. And they, you know, and they had these, um, these pregnancy counselors in the hospitals, which is such a euphemism. Call them what they are abortion counselors. That's what they do. And of course, she never thought about doing this. Kid was born and definitely has some challenges. It's not going to be living a life that's going to be easy, but it's not going to live the horrendous situation that the doctors originally has said she was going to have. And she's the youngest of four, of five, actually, youngest of five. She has four older siblings who will be, as my friend says, Team Teresa, her name is Teresa, as Team Teresa, looking out for her, supporting her, being with her, because that's, you know, so it's it's a real challenge today. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, it's important for us to realize that in these situations, to be pastoral, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be merciful, because these people that suffer these types of situations, the pain they're carrying, 
to be Christ for them in the midst of their pain, their loss, and their anguish is important for us. Having an abortion does not make a woman unpregnant. It makes the mother of a dead baby. And that is going to have severe psychological and emotional repercussions in her life that she has to deal with. And it's important for us as men of God, as ordained, if you ordained ministers of the church, to approach that issue with mercy. Okay? Any final comments before we move on? Uh, uh, yeah, John. That was my daughter two years ago, uh, Father. The guys in my class know that there was, uh, you know, certainly the, the brain was outside of the skull and the organs were outside of the body. And, you know, the, the question my daughter really was struggling was, and maybe the doctors here can help, is does the child feel pain at that point? It was definitely not viable at any stretch of the imagination. And her thing was this child is in pain. And how do we keep going with it? Fortunately, I say fortunately, that she had a miscarriage because she was not going to go that direction. I couldn't steer her away from it. So I don't know the answer to that. Anthony or John, you guys know about pain when it comes to that stage of viability? I don't know the answer to that myself. So so at eight weeks... um central nervous system is formed and, and all the organ systems are formed. So, you know, not that, you know, I know this for sure, but, you know, if, if those organ systems are formed, um, then, yeah, you feel pain. Um, I mean, nobody knows that, you know, there's, there's no hard and fast studies that will actually, you know, uh, corroborate that, but... I mean, I, I only got, I only have to assume that if, if your central nervous system is is completely intact at eight weeks from eight weeks on, uh, if something's done to that, that fetus, then that fetus feels pain. Which is why I always thought, you know, as a medical student, you know, we you know we had when we did OBGYN, you know, we had to uh, you know we had to assist in you know termination of pregnancy procedures. Which, you know, I always thought to myself, if, if anyone actually ever saw these, that, you know, would, it would repulse them to the point that they would never do it. But, you know, but then again, when you tell people, um, you know, hey, you know, uh, smoking and drinking is going to give you horrific head and neck cancer. I'm going to have half your jaw out, you know, and replace it with a piece of your leg and do this Frankenstein surgery on you. They'll think, oh, well, that's never going to happen to me. You know, so it's rationalization and denial is, you know, is it's a great defense mechanism until it's not. Mm. And in that case, in these cases with, um, you know, with termination of pregnancy procedures, you know, rationalization, rationalization and and um, and denial are, are, you know, are, are, you know, not, you know, not, you know, not something that um, is beneficial for you know, anybody, really. It's just terrible. Anthony, I've heard some doctors say that, and John, same thing for you, if I answer this question, I've heard some doctors say that there is never a medical reason for a late-term abortion. Is that an accurate uh, statement? I'm sorry, never a medical reason never for what? for a late-term abortion. There's like, never a medical reason for a late-term abortion? Like, yeah, there can always be something else done like a yeah, I know, I know, I agree with that. 
I, I totally agree with that because now with the technology that we have now, I mean, they actually do surgery within the womb. Right. So, you know, what could, I mean, I've seen, you know, I worked at, um, when I did my residency, um, I, you know, it was, it was also a children's hospital and we used to get kids with, um, all kinds of crazy genetic, you know, issues. And, um, I mean, I mean, things like ectopia cordis where the heart is, you know, was basically outside of the chest wall and stuff like this. And this was, I'm talking about 1987, 1988 when I was a resident. Um, and they used to save those kids. Those kids, I remember one kid in particular where they were looking to terminate the pregnancy at, at 14 weeks because they knew the kid had ectopia cordis and, um, and the mother resisted and the child was born and I was on the pediatric cardiothoracic surgery service when this kid was born. And I remember um, when the child was born, the kid was rushed immediately into the cardiac um or and they literally built the chest wall for this kid and then reconstructed the wall over a period of four and a half years and um the child did fine the unfortunate thing which was extremely ironic to me was uh a couple of years later <laughs> it uh was eating peanuts and aspirated and died which I mean, Whoa. devastated me because this kid wow. was, I mean, a gem. And, I mean, it was unbelievable what they did for this kid. And But no, as far as I'm concerned, late-term abortions, there should be no option for that. Um, because the, the reality of the situation is, is that just like you said, with, you know, severe birth defects, um, nature takes care of itself. And nature is driven not by us, but by God. So in many in, in in many of these 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 children with with horrific genetic defects or any of these you know these things that you know you know someone would try to counsel you about to abort the child a lot of times you know it's a spontaneous abortion it happens on its own. Right. Okay. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate that very much. Okay. All right, Jen. So we're going to move on to. Um, issues regarding infertility and how to understand and deal with those issues of fertility. So again, dealing with very um, emotional issues here. When a couple is trying to conceive and can't, the, the pain of this for couples is enormous. Women will say that when they're struggling with fertility and they see a pregnant woman They'll often be filled with such a visceral sense of jealousy, or you know, why them and not me? Why is you know, why is this happening? Or it's a real, it's a real um, painful, painful. I remember we had a case in my first parish. There was a couple that were trying to conceive, and they were having a hard time doing so. We had a um, once a month at the noon mass, we had baptisms for a couple of kids that parents showed had to get back at the mass. And I remember we did that one uh, one Sunday, and I was celebrating for it. And um, the couple had to walk out of mass because the the pain they felt not intentional, obviously, in our part, just the way it was. But the pain they felt about this. So we're talking about fertility issues, infertility, IVF, and stuff of that nature. 
if they remember at the beginning of the conversation that we're dealing with, again, very emotionally driven situations, people that are really suffering and struggling in these areas. So a little bit of a kind of a precursor as you begin this. The question when it comes to infertility and assisting infertility is are we assisting fertility or replacing fertility? What is the distinction? Because there are distinctions there. And there are ways, there are things the church is very supportive of that can assist fertility. We get skittish and there's a problem. And don't admit that I think you guys always read, Simon. There are things that we simply have a, have a struggle with. But remember that when we're talking about birth and we're talking about pregnancy, humans don't reproduce. Humans procreate. Reproduction is like a copier machine or a factory. Humans procreate because we are co-creating with God. Humans provide the material. God provides the soul. So we're not talking about a simple biological, physiological thing. We're talking about a real serious issue where humans are taking part in the creative act of God. Remember, God can snap his divine fingers and create life if he wanted to. But he doesn't. He invites us to be co-creators with him, which is such an incredible thing. So we're talking about creation and fertility and birth and all these issues. There's a divine element that is present in all of this. And for us to get a handle on that. So when a couple is struggling with fertility, the first question to ask ourselves not us is more medicine than ourselves as theologians is what's the cause of it you know if, if it's if she finds something wrong with her there are ways in which she can hopefully help her fertility like the wither you have a whole thing about you know ovulation cycles and wearing things to bed at night and mucus you know, delineations it's all big beyond my competency but there are ways in which she can change her diet or her habits or whatever the case may be to assist her to be able to um, to have to have children. If there are ovarian cysts, endometriosis, the medication she can take that can help to correct the cyst or endometriosis to allow her to be able to conceive a child. With the guy, it's a little more complicated. If they find out that nothing is wrong with her, then the question becomes, what's his issue? What's the problem going on here? So there are a couple of ways of dealing with this. One that is not so great, one that I think is, is more helpful. First one that I've been talking about for years is to get a proper sperm sample from the husband. What the couple could do is have sexual relations using a perforated condom so that some of the sperm gets through so the integrity of the act is therefore kept in contact, it, it kept uh, connected. And then that can be brought to a doctor to evaluate that. The problem is sperm don't live that long outside of the human body. So talking to a doctor, Dr. Owen Wilson, young guy, young doctor, he's a fertility doctor, he's a Catholic guy, got a big family. Dr. Owen Wilson, um, 
based out of Canada, moved to moved to America a couple of years ago. But um, he was talking about this. I gave him a phone call about this because I had a couple of couples that I referenced to him for for advice. What Owen Wilson says, like Wilson says, when he has this, is advice to a couple. Deal with this. Take the day off from work. Take the day off from work. Have an appointment with me. Let's say three in the afternoon is your appointment. At one or two in the afternoon, go home, have sex, come into the office afterwards, and I will examine her after you've had sex. And I can see in the after effect, the mucus, her motility, and that gives me a sense of knowing what the issue is here. Now, that's all right. I, you know, so there are ways, I guess, of looking at this. And he says that there's nothing better for him to understand what the fertility issues is than doing that. I'm not a gynecologist. I don't know. I think it's a word for it. But um, so there are ways of being able to understand what is going on in um, in those situations. But it certainly is um, a difficult one. Now, the reality is the vast majority of people will simply turn to mutual fertilization artificial insemination to be able to try to have a child. This is not a new issue. In the 19th century, we have records of successful attempts or actually worked at in vitro fertilization. We also have paternity disputes in the law in that time period where there's a question of who is the father here? Is it the right sperm donation? So, a whole big thing. The first church condemnation of this, March 25th, 1897. So, it's not a new condemnation, not a new thing. This was uh, going on in the 19th century. And the church realized early on this um, was an issue. So, IVF can use donated or purchased eggs, donated or purchased sperm, surrogacy, or a combination of all of these. Now, for a woman who is dealing with this, she oftentimes will be given medication to cause hyperovulation. And there are serious side effects that go along with giving medication for hyperovulation. So that becomes an issue there. What will happen then is the doctor, either through laparoscopy or through ultrasound aspiration, will remove the, the eggs from her body. And then the husband or the, or the guy, not the masturbation, will produce the sperm. And then in the lab, and in the Petri dish, they kind of put these things together. And the implantation happens, the um, conception happens in, in the Petri dish. And then it is then through injection or whatever they do, um, it is put into the uterus for possibility of implantation. Now we know that the success rate of IVF is about 30%. So it's not a high success rate at all, which is why doctors often will have several eggs fertilized to help the possibility of there being uh, more attempts at this. Now, the problem is, if she has four or five eggs fertilized, and the first one implants, what happens? Other three or four of them that she doesn't want. 
they're fertilized now. They're actually, they're, they're, this conception has happened. So what do you do? Well, what's happened now is there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands actually, of fertilized eggs, literally, now it's, it's, it's conception has happened in freezers, in clinics all over the country. Because mom wanted to have, you know, one child and first one took and the rest, what do you do with them? So we have a, we have a serious, serious problem when it comes to those fertilized eggs that have an absurd fate they're consigned to. Now, additionally, the cost of IVF is about $15,000. Now, most insurances do not cover IVF. What they cover is medication to assist pregnancy, fertility. They do not cover IVF procedure itself. Now, some do. Some companies do have that, but they're rare. They're very rare. It's expensive. Now, here's the thing. This is a, one of my major point today. So IVF is expensive. Where do you find IVF clinics? They're in Scarsdale, Yorktown Heights, you know, rich areas. Where do you find Planned Parenthood? The South Bronx, Washington Heights, poor areas. Huh. In other words, we're doing everything we can to make sure that rich white people have children, but poor minorities have abortions. That sounds racist to me. My gents, in today's day and age, there is no name where you're saying you're a racist. And I have, I've used this argument before. People get all up in that shape about it. But I'm like, what's wrong about it? That's the reality, isn't it? And Margaret Sanger was an evil person. Margaret Sanger described people that are black as a human weeds. As you know, she and, and her eugenics movement was to eliminate, to eliminate that population. And so there are more abortions than live births in the Bronx. That's a horrifying system. So in the rich areas, let's make sure the rich white folks have kids. Poor black people, poor Hispanics, nah, then that's not worth it. Forget about them. So on a basic level of justice, it becomes a real serious issue when it comes to the fact that we're helping white people to have children, black people, Latino people, but not so much. So that's, and again, there is nothing you can say that will make people more, more better shape than that. Anthony, or saying anything, or just, no? All right. So there are essentially two forms of IVF that we're talking about. The first is what is known as heterologous. Heterologous, E-H-E-T-E-R-O-L-O-G-O-U-S. So heterologous is where a woman donates her eggs or has her eggs and it is fertilized by somebody other than her spouse. So despite the obvious harm this does, the unit of procreative elements of the marital act, we also have an issue here where the child will be raised probably 
without a father. So we have that added difficulty here. So Donum Vitae says, heterologous artificial insemination fertilization is contrary to the unity of marriage, the dignity of the spouses, the vocation proper to parents, and to the child's right to be conceived and brought into the world in marriage and from marriage. Because here is the issue, guys. When a child is produced in a lab, in a petri dish, the danger here is treating it as a product, something you've produced. And that sounds far-fetched. In divorce settlements, when it comes to frozen embryos, the embryos are treated as property. Okay? Not as children, but as property. So the law itself has kind of a saving when it comes to how we view this. Right? So, heterologous. Now, homologous, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-O-U-S, homologous IVF, not the same problem when it comes to parents, but the same problem when it comes to the morality of the act itself. Again, this becomes part of the action here. It becomes an affront to the dignity of the child. Now, that being said, this should be obvious. Any child conceived via IVF is loved by God, cherished by God, dignity, worth, value. So how a child is conceived has no bearing on the dignity and worth of the child themselves. Now, the problem, though, is there also is an issue of a strain on marriage. We know that couples that have tried to use IVF are three times more likely to divorce than a couple that doesn't. It is an enormous strain on a marriage when IVF is not working. It's expensive, it's draining emotionally, it's draining physically, draining psychologically. It has enormous effects on a married couple as well. Additionally, there are times, and this has happened just last year, the article in the New York Post, where a woman had her egg fertilized with somebody else's sperm than her husband. The lab messed it up. And she found out afterwards, oh, by the way, your kid, yeah, um, not your husband's sperm. Sorry about that. Our bad. Yeah. So the strain that put in the marriage, couple ended up getting, getting divorced. So clearly here, there are traumas that are associated with the issues of, uh, of IVF and the old question of, is a child being produced in a lab rather than do that as a gift, a gift of marital love that comes from the parents in the marital act. It's such an important part of, 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 um, of marriage. So those become some issues. Now, that being said, Part of the challenge of medical ethics is the science has far outpaced the ethics. We're playing catch up on some issues. So there are some issues we don't have a, a true definition yet about the morality of an action. So one such action actually is approved by the church is called lower tubal ovum 
transfer. Lower tubal ovum transfer. Now, in that case, there's a blockage in the fallopian tube. So the egg cannot, cannot travel up the tube to the uterus if it's fertilized. In that case, it is appropriate, it is moral to take the egg, do some kind of surgery, and put it beyond where the blockage is. So the sperm can reach it in the fallopian tube. They got there and fertilize it. There was no, at that point, there's no harm at all done to the marital lack. You're assisting it and moving the egg from a blocked place to an unblocked place in the fallopian tube. Now, the problem with that is there is very little success, unfortunately, with that procedure. It's, it's rare, it rarely uh, ever works. So the point of almost being not even uh, used or tried because it just doesn't, doesn't work. But that would be a proper case of assisting instead of replacing the idea of um, the marital act and conjugal union. All right. Another one that is not defined yet, but is morally controversial, is known as gamete, G-A-M-E-T-E, intra-fallopian transfer. Gamete, intra-fallopian transfer, abbreviated as GIFT. Now, what GIFT does is it takes the wife's egg, the husband's sperm, in the lab, and what they, what they do is they don't combine them with a section in the lab using an air bubble that separates the egg and the sperm. They have them close connected. They then reinsert the, the egg and the sperm with the air bubble in between them in the fallopian tube. So conception actually would happen in the fallopian tube, not in the lab. So that actually is in vivo fertilization, not in vitro fertilization. To me though, it's still taking an outside entity in the lab and using that as you know a step in this process. However, Catholic theologians on both sides of the issue here are divided when it comes to this. Some good theologians say, well, it's not in vitro, which is not, because the actual conception is not happening in the lab. It's happening in the fallopian tube, where it happens anyway. They're saying, well, that's not really immoral. To me, it still raises some major issues. But if a couple really felt like this was the proper thing to do, they prayed about it, they've thought about it, they've researched it, and they choose to go this route, they could do so, morally speaking. But I would I caution them against it. And again, the bigger problem here is the procurement of the husband's sperm. Because again, if they use the condom, perforated condom, how long does sperm live before it's gonna die and not make this possible? If masturbation produces it in a lab, we have an immoral act leading to this. So it becomes a very serious problem in terms of the way in which this can be done. But that being said, the church has not ruled definitively in either way, about it being moral or being immoral. 
So it definitely is not uh, chosen and decided upon yet. However, if and when it is, that then closes the case on the, once Romans has adjudicated it, that's it. But Rome is very slow, properly speaking, on these issues. Because if you're going to say, this is wrong, this is immoral, and a document from the CDF from, you know, from the Vatican says this, this is law. So they're going to make sure that all the proper experts, the proper doctors, research goes into these types of decisions before they speak. And the Vatican knows that theologians, they're not doctors, do not make proclamations before they have a real strong set, strong sense of the morality and the laicity of an action. All right? All right. Moving along is the issue of surrogacy. But surrogacy is normally is a case where the woman is able to conceive, but her husband is unable to uh, fertilize the egg through a medical issue or through some kind of a problem. So she instead is, you know, has unfertile insemination and then carries a child to term with, you know, somebody else's sperm or a case of she can't herself have the pregnancy uh, for whatever reason. So using the husband's sperm and the surrogate's egg, the surrogate carries a child term. In that situation, where the husband's sperm and the surrogate's egg are used there, she is not a surrogate mother. She's a biological mother. What she is in that case, is a surrogate wife, which is a very different kind of situation. Now, we know as well that a couple will pay upwards of $10,000 for the woman acting as a surrogate. There was a case just recently where a woman cannot manage to bring the child to her, have the child have a pregnancy, so her husband his sperm, and the the mother, the, the her, his mother-in-law, her egg was used to bring this child to term. I gotta tell you guys, that's like, I don't know, man. This thing about that really kind of wigs me out a little bit. You know, so there are cases like that that I just think you're talking about like some really strange um, situations, but also with the money involved in it, we can see the other problem here in terms of a woman being paid to be a surrogate and it being a financial thing rather than it being, you know, something else. It also becomes an issue now with homosexual couples because if a guy donates his sperm and they have a surrogate woman for their pregnancy to be carried to term, well, the baby is going to resemble one of the father's not the other one. So I heard recently, this is like out of, out of, you know, Wave the World and Huxley. It's like a case where the gamete of the woman, the nucleus is removed and replaced with, and replaced with the nucleus of the other partner so that the kid resembles both human fathers. 
Now, I'm not sure that's even possible yet scientifically, but I know that's being looked at as a way of having the child resemble both dads instead of one of the dads and the surrogate they're using for, for her aid. So this is really like, whew, this is a big issue. Another issue is if a woman has, let's say she, she has, you know, three or four embryos implanted in her, they'll, they'll take, let's say. But she only wants to have like one kid. There is the issue now of selective abortion. Well, keep the one, the other two, get rid of them. So how do you tell a kid? How that, well, your other siblings, yeah, they, 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 didn't, they didn't make it. But you did. So, great for you. How do you, what do you do with that? So, this, this is, there are so many problems that are, that are on the market here that are just really problematic. Another issue is, imagine a young woman, financially strapped, who may sell her eggs to be able to make some money. Which may mean putting her on hyperovulation medication to be able to do this, which could have serious ramifications for her health. And imagine the possibility of financial exploitation in those situations. Similarly, imagine a man donating his sperm to a sperm bank. You know, and again, what's the issue here? It's going to contribute to the issue of single mothers raising their children. And the crisis of fatherhood only exacerbated by dad not being in the picture at all. And a child has the right to know their parents. And it's terrible at being deprived of the child in that situation. We also know that children conceived through IVF have high rates of birth defects, like extra fingers, extra toes, anomalies of reproductive organs, mental handicaps. So there are other issues. You know, when you screw with nature, it screws you back, very bluntly. You can't play games with these things and not think it's gonna be a problem. So, you know, and reproduct reproduction, pregnancy, birth, are very technical, very, very um, difficult circumstances. I mean, we think about how the mortality rate of women in pregnancy, even a century ago, was was very, very high. And it still is a risk. It still is something which is, you know, going to pray for a healthy baby in delivery because of the challenges here. All right. Now, getting back to the issue of these embryos that are fertilized but kept frozen in a lab. There is a thing now called snowflake babies. And the snowflake baby situation is this. If parents can't conceive, well, they can conceive, but they want to adopt the frozen embryo is it adoption or is it surrogacy because it's not their child woman's carrying somebody else's baby to turn inside of her 
Is it a rescue or is it surrogacy? The church has not ruled on this yet. To me, though, it's a very hard thing to eliminate the surrogacy from the moral object of the action. If what is being done relative to reason, how is it not surrogacy? Some say, well, it's adoption. Because in surrogacy, you're choosing to give up the child once he's born. With this, you're keeping the kid once he's, he or she is born. To me, it still raises major issues regarding it being surrogacy instead of it being um, adoption or rescue. Other issue is, you know, keeping them alive via a freezer is that extraordinary means. If you were to defrost them and they were to die, well, is the freezer an extraordinary means of their survival? I don't know. So the church has yet to make any definitive teaching about that. So again, if a couple wanted to adopt or rescue a snowflake baby and they prayed about it and thought about it, researched it, and in their conscience, they could do so there's nothing the church could say that would be morally wrong about this issue. But there are um, a lot of issues, a lot of problems and difficulties that um, are waiting for us with the complexity of uh, birth and fertility issues. There also are ethical dilemmas of other natures. Last year, there's a case of a guy, Peter Zhu, West Point graduate, actual boyfriend cadet who was gravely injured in a skiing accident and pronounced brain dead. His body was kept alive, the respirator and the parents of the kid citing his desire to have a family and the cultural issue, because they're, they're a Chinese couple, of the family name, of that element of passing on the lineage, um, asked to retrieve his sperm to be used one day create the family he desired and it was granted so there are all kinds of interesting situations that approach us I had a case at first parish when we came to the parish she was um, she had had IVF and three or four of the embryos that were frozen she was going to now go to the clinic and attempt to have them implanted in her. She had the, she had them with her in this like contraption, this like freezer-ish contraption thing. Run to the parish before going to the clinic. The father, could you bless these embryos for me? And I thought, well, if they're fertilized, they are when they were, then they're actually living people with the human soul. So you know what? Yeah, I bless them. She went to the clinic. None of them were able to take the old, the old just passed passed away naturally, not being not being able to be uh, implanted. But uh, she and her husband became very strong advocates against IVF because of the strain it put on their marriage, 
the trainer put on their family, a lot of issues. Now, this is a topic where the church is never going to win on. It's an unwinnable topic, and here's why. The cute baby in the bassinet through IVF that's smiling at you, that's cooling at you, it's cute. There's father, wagging his finger, this is wrong. Who's going to win? The baby, every time. So it's an unwinnable position. That being said, it doesn't mean it's not worth saying why we think this is a problem, morally speaking. Okay? So, there it is. Abortion and IVF in about two hours. So, <laughs> any questions or comments or anything unclear tonight in the lecture? Father, I just want to just wanted to comment if I could just yeah. real, real briefly. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife and I went through this stuff that you were talking about in terms of um, not being able to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Thank God her gynecologist was so on top of things after doing some basic tests said, have your husband tested. It turned out to be me. <laughs> so she was saved a lot of aggravation and we were saved a lot of aggravation. But see, I think for us, here's where the beauty of being faithful to our faith came in. Yeah, we thought about a lot of things. We thought about how are we going how are we going to be able to get a child, you know, um, in vitro. But, but no, 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 no. There are plenty of children out there, and this and I think this this really goes to the to the issue of um, if we're going to be uh, cutting down on abortions. We're going to have a lot of kids that are going to need parents that love and care for them. There are plenty of parents out there that will love and care adopted kids. I met them. I lived with them. I, I socialized with them there. And, and I think, you know, we are more and more an international culture when it comes to adoption. You know, we went to Colombia, South America. Our next door neighbors went to uh, Korea. Uh, there are plenty of children that are being born that need good parents. Yeah. You don't have to be freezing eggs and sperm and, and playing all these games to, to take care of these kids. That's just my opinion. I'm I, I, listen, George, I, I'm with you, man. Obviously I'm with you, so yeah. No, it's one of those challenges of, there are so many, um, again, internationally, you're right. It's a couple that I knew from my former parish who adopted a kid from, from uh, Russia. And they commented that going to the orphanage your heart wanted to take all the kids home with you. Because you saw that, you know, these kids need loving, caring parents and families. So you have the desire to kind of save them from those circumstances. So if there is a challenge where you can't conceive, maybe it's God inviting you to consider this. Not morally obligatory, you don't have to do it. Perhaps the Lord inviting you uh, to consider it. All right? So it's tough. All right, gents. So for next week, we're going to be focusing on organ transplants and surgery. So fun. Um, the reading assignment is on, on the Vatican website. If it is Dignitatis, Dignitatis Persona, P-E-R-S-O-N-A-E, -E, Dignitatis Persona. And essentially is a um, 
not a long document, but written about 12 years ago, and it's an updated form of Donum Vitae. So it gives you kind of an addendum what you guys read last week on the newer developments, reiterating some points made tonight, and kind of a bridge to next week's topic on surgery and organ transplants. Okay. Any other questions, comments, that anything unclear? All right, fellas. See you in a week. Thank you.